Today, our focus will be on Chapter 9 of the Toolkit, Organizing for the Response. And I'm pleased to have here today Stephen Hall, an associate partner in McKinsey Dubai office who led the development of this chapter. Welcome, Stephen. And thank you for coming on to speak with us about this important topic, Organizing for the Response. Thanks, Bertrand. Stephen, most school systems have already set up their organization to respond to COVID-19 in education. But given the unprecedented nature of this reality, of course, this demands a very well organized, uh, and yet it has to be delivered uh, fast and uh, effectively. In addition, given the urgency of the situation, many systems have not had the chance to take a step back and really think through how they are organized and what they could improve. So it's very important for us to understand what can be improved, what is key to ensuring a sustainable and effective response. In addition, organizing is not just about the response to this crisis, but also about anticipating the upcoming priorities and planning ahead of time. Indeniably, stakeholders are facing a new reality in education. Parents may be anxious and uncertain. Teachers will likely face higher workloads. Learning gaps may have increased for students. There may well be tighter budgets, supporting infrastructure, and other challenges that most education systems all over the world are facing. While, of course, each system has its own particularities, probably severity of the crisis, underlying resilience of the system pre-COVID, its governance, the role of different stakeholders. But all systems will need to address unprecedented common factors, including school closures, back and forth in the confinement measures, new public health measures, clusters of outbreak, and other challenges. So basically, the key is to get organized and avoid common pitfalls faced in the crisis response. Probably four of them are important. Inadequate discovery, optimism bias and lack of adequate sensing mechanisms, constrained solution design, many crises shift normal boundaries and hence need new solutions to be designed and creative responses. Third, slow or poor decision-making, group thinking, political pressure, high emotional situations and, and familiarity and patterns uh, recognition-driven thinking fails. Of course, uh, there is also an inadequate delivery and execution failures. In some cases, it's chaos and during disruptions that frequently translates to lack of direction and accountability. So, Stephen, given all these aspects, how should system organize all the decision and activity that are needed for the response? And at which level and in which kind of architecture? So I think there are a number of things which systems need to be thinking about. I think the first thing to understand is what is this next phase of the crisis going to need from an organizational perspective? What are the decisions and activities that are needed to make sure that the response works smoothly, not just in education, but across sectors and in coordination with other bodies? And where should the responsibility for each of these things lie? So first of all, identifying the full set of those decisions and activities. So not just when should schools reopen, but how are they going to do that safely? How is that going to interact with parental engagement? How does that work with parents' jobs and regulations on employment? Second piece is, where should the decision or where should that work sit? What should the education system be responsible for? What should the health system be thinking about in coordination with the education system? And then finally, for the things that sit within the education system, where should that be at what level of the system? So what things should we let head teachers and principals have some autonomy in what they decide? And what things should be centralized at a system level or a national level? And regardless of the, the type of system that we're organizing, because obviously the governance of education system varies quite significantly across countries, 
we need to think about what things does it make sense to centralize and what things does it make sense to decentralize. So when we think about centralization, what are the things where we need a system view, where thinking about communication, external relations, where we, there are real economies of scale. So do we need to scale up procurement or uh, IT and technology solutions? Or are there things where we need real standardization? So compliance with public health measures potentially is something where some centralization would be helpful. The decentralization, what do we, where do we want to give districts or schools greater autonomy, things that would benefit from a more bottom-up or tailored approach to local realities. So how do we implement the things that we've agreed we're going to try and do at a system level? Or how do we flag particular issues? And then finally, making sure that we build on what we have. So this is a crisis time. Everybody is stretched. We don't have time to be building new institutions or building new capabilities where we can leverage the ones that we already have. So where do we have units and teams and talent that can help us do this at whatever level so that we're balancing, organizing an efficient and structured response and then safeguarding our existing processes? Now, so once we've decided how we're going to structure this response, now we need to think about the key functions that we need to be delivering. I think, obviously, over the past few months, while schools have been mostly closed, systems have been delivering a set of these functions. But as we go back to school and as we think about re-enrolling children, catching up lost learning, all the things that we've talked about in other dimensions of the toolkit, there's going to be additional stress on each of these different dimensions that we need to make sure that we're, we've got this really effectively in place. First of these is making sure that we've got an effective data and monitoring system. There are some really interesting examples, both in education, but outside of education, uh, Norway set up a system called Smitterstop, which is a, a coronavirus tracker app which uses GPS and Bluetooth to dispatch anonymized data about movement patterns. But even then within schools, we need to think about how do we make sure that we're collecting the right data from within schools and empowering teachers to do some of these things. Then there is the supporting functions, making sure that we've got finance and procurement in place, both in terms of the resources that we have, but also that these functions are able to operate, are able to make sure that we're delivering the services. So if we need uh, increased supplies, whether it's of soap, hand sanitizer, masks. How do we make sure that our procurement engine as a system is in place in order to do that? Making sure that we've got alignment in terms of the communication protocols. So how are schools communicating with parents and how are parents communicating with schools? The regulator in uh, the United Arab Emirates was able to produce a parent guide for distance learning. So what information do parents need in order to make sure that they are supporting their children with hybrid and distance learning, but also giving them guidance on what questions to ask schools, what are the recommended supplies they should be buying at home, and tips for parents who are working in order to be better prepared to manage distance learning. Similarly, Denmark, which actually reopened schools relatively early on, set up a standardized mandatory set of posters for all schools to provide the right information and guidance for children, a state hotline to answer any questions that, uh, that parents or families might have, and that that works by, by phone or by chat in 25 different languages to make sure that it's as inclusive as possible and getting the, uh, getting the messages out to as broad a range of people as possible. And then finally, this, this centralized system needs to take responsibility for monitoring the effectiveness of all the other measures. We've spoken in other chapters of the toolkit and other episodes of this podcast about the importance of different, uh, different initiatives and different measures, different policies that we've put in place. And it's really important that we build the capability to monitor those, not so that we can say in a year's time or two years time, how effective was our response as a system, but to be able to say on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, what's working, what's not working, 
and be able to then adapt or refine the approach that we've taken so that we're able to, to respond to the crisis in real time. But Han, as you think across the engagement that you've had with different systems globally and different ministries of education in member states, are there any promising examples that you've seen and, and what is it that makes them stand out? Thank you, Stephen. Indeed, there are different examples that we can look at from different income level, from different uh, geographies and, and, and regions. But probably uh, there are few ingredients that will make any um, organization uh, system uh, effective and, and responsive to the needs. I think you mentioned a very important uh, dimension, which is about governance. So uh, how you organize the centralization, decentralization there are other aspects that we refer to and, and we looked at coordination and consultation. There are other things that I think are important that are key for any successful and effective response system is uh, how you involve multidisciplinary expertise, including health, education and other expertise such as uh, psychosocial. And last and not least is, of course, the agility and flexibility of the system to respond and to adapt to the changing uh, landscape and knowing that we know the situation has been evolving. So probably let me start with the first example, and it refers to the, the point that, that you referred to earlier, Stephen, about centralization and decentralization. Maybe uh, one interesting response regarding the centralization was in Malaysia, where first the decisions about different sectors of response, including health, security, education, economic, were centralized under the Ministry of Health umbrella. Example, when to reopen schools, closing schools, restriction of movement, and other aspects. Second, the decision and activities of the response in education were centralized at the national level under the Minister of Education with the advice of, from the Minister of Health. So this interministerial coordination was important and key. This ensured a highly coordinated and integrated approach to the response with all key decisions taken under a single umbrella with limited coordination needed. The structure of the response was centralized at the national level under the National Security Council and at the Prime Minister Office at the regional and district school levels as well. I think I referred to the multidisciplinary aspect. So in Malaysia, any key decision and activities of the different ministries flowed through this council, which included representatives from the ministries as well as experts, including, among others, statisticians, medical doctors, security and police experts. So this multidisciplinary uh, expertise is, is really uh, important in Malaysia is an example of uh, this type of mobilization of multidisciplinary expertise. The other aspect is about the governance and, and how you make the operating model of the council work in, in an agile way. And in the case of uh, Malaysia, the council had daily stand-up meetings. The response was organized in two-week phases or sprints with the council continuously reassessing the need for specific measures as the number of cases decreased with the time. The structure of the organization was flexible and evolved as the need for centralized response decreased. The council went from a highly executive decision-making body on all aspects of the response to taking on an overseeing and, and coordination role and gradually devolving the key decision to individual ministries. The decision of the council were based on continuous stakeholder consultation. For example, the reopening of schools, uh, the council and the Minister of Education consulted with the state and district education office, public and private association, NGOs, parents, students, private providers, and politicians. So uh, this broader consultation was an important action of the council. Maybe let me uh, finish with the Malaysian case on two uh, key lessons that I think we have learned from that experience. 
First of all, how you can set up a flexible structure by ensuring that uh, it can be easily re uh, re and up and, and down with a two-week sprint, an agile way of working. Malaysia was able to navigate the different phases of the crisis and adapt its organization to the changing needs of the response. Second, one key aspect has been consulting with stakeholders throughout the process. This inclusive approach of consulting in the planning and organization of the response was key in informing the different stakeholders and getting the buy-in from uh, all the actors. So this is the case of Malaysia. There are other cases that I can refer to, for example, Saskatchewan in, in Canada. In response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the education system there set up a centralized response planning team dedicated to the educational challenges. And the response planning team is headed by the uh, Saskatchewan Teachers Federation Executive Director and includes representatives from the School Board Association, the League of Education Administrators, Directors and Superintendent, Association of School Business Officials, and the Minister of Education. Again, there are a few lessons learned there. First of all, uh, is the uh, clear mandate that was given to the highly centralized regional level task force, which coordinated and planned the reopening process. It also issued guidelines and, and resources for on health protocols, uh, for example, for reopening and regular response planning team uh, updates and provided guidance to teachers and schools. Maybe, Stephen, to finish with, the last example is, is Palestine where the Minister of Education coordinated key partners from existing education cluster for responding to the crisis. They had four objectives in education at the National Response Plan. They have created four task forces that looked at uh, risk communication and, and hygiene. A second looked at distance learning. And the third looked at the uh, mental health and psychological, psychosocial support. And the last was about wash infrastructure which looked at the rehabilitation of the school wash and facilities. So these are examples of countries that managed to organize themselves to respond to the crisis in an agile and flexible way, but had to make trade-offs between centralized decision-making and decentralized. And as I mentioned earlier, it can be a gradual shift from very centralized process to a decentralized process. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us today to speak about organizing for the response. Thank you, Bahan. You can find more information on the toolkit and the organizing for the response chapter, including a more detailed description of the problem, the framework of response, key case studies and practical checklists for action on the Global Education Coalition website. In addition, for more information, you can access materials developed by other members of the coalition around organizing for the response. And don't forget to look at all the other chapters for which we have podcasts. Stephen, thank you for joining us today and thank you for all the time that we spent together in developing the podcast series. Thank you. Thank you.